All right. Good evening. Welcome back to our Bible study on the life of Christ. So we are moving right along, and um, got to say, I've really enjoyed the time we've spent so far. This might be one of my favorite series to cover. I really do enjoy Revelation. It's great for a Christian to be reminded of where we are going and how it ends, but <laughs> it is greater to be reminded of where we came from and how it began. Now, obviously, you know, our story began before Christ, creation, God, uh, the, the, the events that he set up in the Old Testament for the life of Christ, but we call ourselves Christians because of Christ. We call ourselves the church because it began after the resurrection of Christ. So although there was a story before the story of Christ, as New Testament believers, you might say that our origin story began in the Gospels with Christ. And we should never forget that. And as, as, as powerful as it is to be reminded of where we're going, let's never forget where we came from, which is why I think I love this series so much, because it reminds us of Christ, what he did for us, reminds us of his heart, of his intentions, and these are all valuable things for us to consider. So we're going to go ahead and pick right up in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and verse 22. Jesus Christ is, uh, we, well, he just, he just healed a man who was uh, possessed by a demon, so we're told in verse 22, then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind, dumb, healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. All the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? So Jesus Christ does an amazing thing and people are amazed because they say, wait a second, uh, how can this man do these amazing things, which implies that that, that casting out demons wasn't a common occurrence. Now, it seems to be that there's a lot of demons where Jesus goes. This is not the only time we see a demonically possessed individual. This is one of a handful. And then we also see the apostles being confronted with demonic possession, the apostle Paul specifically casting out a demon uh, from a woman which causes chaos in the city because her masters say essentially, you know, she's no good to us now without the demon, whatever that demon did, <laughs> brought in money. And so there is a lot of demonic activity going on in the time of Christ and the early church. I've read before that uh, it's, it's claimed you see large amounts of demonic activity around periods of times where God is doing amazing things. I'm not necessarily against that statement. I just don't see any scriptural basis for that statement. The Bible never makes such a claim. You can see some demonic possession throughout the Old Testament. You can see a lot in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. You don't see really demonic possession throughout the epistles where the Apostle Paul or Peter are giving instructions on how to deal with demonic possession, not saying it wasn't existent, just saying it wasn't really dealt with or, or um, covered in the epistles. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure if the demonic possession is strong because Satan is trying to do his work knowing that Christ and his work is being done at the same time. I'm not sure if the demonic possession is strong only because it comes out around Christ. There was always demonic possession, but when Christ arrives on the scene, the demons are scared and saying, leave us alone, and so the possession gets more demonic. It's more obvious around Christ. Not sure exactly what is the case, but here Jesus Christ is casting out a demon, and it's very obvious a demon, and so the people 
are pretty amazed. We're told they were amazed. Is not this the son of David? Uh, Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. So they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. He, he, this guy isn't so great. He's not, he's not the amazing man that you think he is. By the way, that, that term, son of David, is referring to the Messiah. So the people are saying, wait a second, is this the Messiah? Not because he can raise the dead, which he's already done. Not because he can uh, heal the sick. He's already done that. Not because he can turn water into wine. Check. No, because he cast a demon out. Now, isn't that telling, that of all the things he's done, this seems to be like a 10 on the scale of amazing things? I would have put raising the dead as a 10. <laughs> Casting out demons, I don't think I would have put, up, put it up there with raising the dead. But it is when he, when, when he casts out a demon, they're saying, wow, it's the Messiah. He's arrived. And the Pharisees say, no, 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 no. This isn't the Messiah. No, no. This isn't the Christ. He's not, he's not the Savior you've been looking for. <laughs> no, this man... He is doing the work of the devil. This man is of Satan. He's the opposite of the Messiah. He's the anti-Christ. <laughs> now, religion is a powerful tool for good or for bad. They say, Pastor Russ, no, no. Religion's only a powerful tool for good. I, I mean for bad, excuse me. You know, I've heard this. You know, we're not in a religion. We're in a relationship with Christ. Well, I've said this before, that religion is not a dirty word in the Bible. God never condemns the word religion. In fact, he tells us what true religion is, and he talks about false religions. So God is not against religion. God is against false religions. True religion is a reflection of God's heart. That's true religion. And it's described in the Bible as assisting the helpless, specifically widows and orphans, the fatherless, who in that culture, there was no security government program assisting the widows and the orphans. Uh, They died, starved to death, or some kind-hearted soul helped them out. Which is why in uh, the the New Testament... (laughs) We're told in the epistles that those who do not assist the widows in their family are worse than an infidel. Basically, if you did not assist a widow in your family, a niece, a cousin, an aunt, a grandmother, whatever, you were dooming them to starvation. It wasn't just like, I don't want to buy my cousin who's a widow a new car. You know, she has two cars. I don't want to buy her a third one. Uh, she has a nice house, has to downsize to a two-bedroom rather than a five-bedroom. But, you know, she's got one kid, like, she'll be okay. Am I worse than an infidel for not funding her lavish lifestyle? No, back then, they died. They had to, they had to beg at the gates. Hard enough to do when you're a guy. Extremely difficult when you're a child. Who knows what kind of abuse was done to children. That's not the point of tonight's message, who, who put themselves on the street begging for money. Who knows what abuse women had to go through. Many of them probably reverted to prostitution rather than suffering through a slow death of starvation. So any Christian who would claim, say, oh, I love my family, but they're going to allow this widow to go into prostitution or starvation or abuse, God says, no, no, don't don't call yourself one of mine. (laughs) He's not saying they're not saved because there's a whole lot of Christians that probably are worse than infidels. It's not that they're unsaved, but they act worse than the unsaved. God says, don't, don't, don't proclaim your Christianity because as far as I'm concerned, you're worse than the unsaved in your actions. Your actions are worse than theirs. And so 
to, uh, to, to Christ, who is now dealing with religious people. The issue is not religion. The issue is false religion. That's the problem here. And a lot of Christians, a lot of evangelicals, 21st century Christians, we don't want to use the word religion because it's been abused and tainted by so many false religions. We want to separate ourselves from the word altogether and create what? A new word? Relationship. We're in a relationship with God, not religion. Christianity? not religion. So we're, we're kind of creating new words, although Christianity, of course, referring to Christians and New Testament, so many other things. Whereas the world just says, you can call it what you want. It's still religion, all right? You can put caramel over the apple. It's still an apple, right? So for us to kind of proclaim that we're not religious or not in a religion just sounds to the world that we're hypocrites, liars, and deceivers. I mean, call us what we are. We're in a religion, and we are religious. What we need to do is fight back for a pure term to be used and to describe what that should look like, not try to say we're not religious or not in a religion. We are in a religion, but we're in the religion of Christianity, of the Bible, a religion that God states very clearly how it should look, and we should not be ashamed of that. But when you've got people who are in a false religion, They've got it for a reason, to appease their conscience. Most likely, though, it's power, uh, money, it, it's abuse. There's corruption involved in false religion. Now, you've got to be honest. There's corruption involved in pure religion, right? Because even pure religion has humans in it, <laughs> humans who are capable of mistakes. How much worse when the religion itself isn't founded on purity, when it's not founded on love, when it's not founded on a God dying on our behalf, how much worse when the religion is founded on good works, founded on people? How much worse will the corruption get? Well, we see evidence of it throughout history and today, the corruption of religion. And Christ had to deal with that corruption even then. These religious leaders weren't really looking for truth, were they? If they were, they would have found it in Christ. He answered the questions. He was the answer. He taught the truth. He lived the truth. Any person who was truly seeking a pure religion need look no further than Christ, especially when Christ, the Son of God, God himself, was literally walking earth. So it's very obvious that these religious leaders were not seeking truth. They wanted to be the truth. They wanted people to go to them for all source of truth. They didn't want people going to God through them even, which was the role of a priest. They wanted them to go directly to them and say, I am God to you. And so when Christ stood up as truth, they had to either admit their deception or fight tooth and nail against the truth, Christ. Well, we know what happened. They fought tooth and nail, and all they can do is call him a liar. They can't duplicate these miracles. They can't cast out demons. All they can say is, you, you can't believe what you see, or something like this, what you see is from Satan, not from God. We are from God. He is from the devil. Which leads us now to the, the next passage that bothers many, many Christians. And not just teenagers. It bothers adults. It bothers people who've been saved 20 years, two years, two weeks when they come to this passage. Inevitably, a Christian who does not know the Word of God well is left with a nagging question. Am I really saved? 
Because a lot of people, when they get saved, they got saved with very little knowledge of Scripture, which, praise the Lord, we're not saved through knowledge, right? Praise the Lord, we're not saved through deep theology. We are saved through faith and a whole lot of grace. (laughs) You don't need to be a theologian to be saved. You don't need to know the books of the Bible by name or the content of them to be saved. You need to know Christ, what he did for you, and accept it through faith. And honestly, you don't even, never, you don't even ever have to have read the Bible for that to have happened. Someone could have told you of Christ, told you of what the Bible said without even opening it, and you can still get saved. So a lot of people get saved with very shallow knowledge of Christ. That's a beautiful thing, by the way. I think that's not a a negative. That's a positive, that God doesn't require us to go to college to get saved. Praise the Lord for that. God doesn't require 18, 28, uh, and a mature experience of the Christian faith before you accept it. That is a beautiful thing. Salvation truly is free, not for God, but for us. It costs God much. All it costs us, you might say, is our, our repentance, humility, recognizing we need a Savior, and faith in the Savior, who is not us, but Jesus Christ. But the problem is not with how free salvation is, but that so many people take advantage of new believers. Because they know so little, they are so easily taken advantage of. They are children in the faith. They are babies in the faith. The worst offense, in my opinion, is against infants, is against the unborn, born or unborn young babies. They are the most innocent you could get. I mean, even babies are sinners, but they're as innocent as you can get this side of heaven, right? And so the worst offense is against those who can't help themselves, the innocent, those who don't have the wherewithal, the maturity to protect themselves, to to answer for themselves. And it is the most evil of people who go after the most innocent, those who cannot protect themselves. Which, by the way, leads down a whole other another path of this idea that, you know, children can make decisions for themselves. What are you talking about? That children can make life-altering, body-altering decisions at four and five. That is still abuse in my very strong opinion. We're not just talking sexual abuse here, which, by the way, is indirectly sexual abuse. When allowing these young children who are naive cannot think for themselves and adults who would dare assume what the child would want in 20 years. At five years old, even the child doesn't know. How could anyone else know? And that an adult would take advantage of the innocence and the the lack of wherewithal and knowledge and maturity and the abuse on these children is a wicked, wicked thing. And it's interesting how the Bible refers to Christians as babies in the Lord, as infants in the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells some believers, you guys are still drinking milk, you're babes, when you should be adults eating meat. And so we shouldn't be shocked how easily swayed a new believer in the Lord can be. Well, they have the Holy Spirit. Won't he direct them? (laughs) You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't overcome us like a robot, and, you know, he, he controls our every movement. The Holy Spirit gives direction, yes, but we still have to learn how that looks and how that works, and, and knowledge of Scripture is the greatest thing. So a lot of Christians who don't ever gain what I'll call discipleship are inevitably in for a very rough ride, extremely so, this side of heaven. 
And a lot of people think, well, if they're saved, you know, everything's going to work out great, and uh, they're guaranteed sanctification, and they're guaranteed growth. And if they're saved, they're guaranteed fruit. There will be an abundance of fruit, guaranteed if they get saved. Where is that in Scripture? Oh, it's in the Scripture of the parable of the sower and the seeds. Uh, And the sower cast into the good ground, and there was much fruit, a hundredfold fruit. Well, what about the other seeds that fell into the rocky and the thorny and into the wayside? What about those? Well, those were all unsaved. The Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture doesn't say in that parable that they were unsaved. It says that they, the thorny ground was the world. The cares of this world uh, took away their, their desire to know more of God. It gives descriptions, but it doesn't describe them as unsaved. The only one described as unsaved is when the, the ravens came and took the seeds and ate the seeds. That's the only description. And it says before the truth could enter their heart, before there could be a response, the birds ate the seeds. All the other seeds, there was uh, germination. All the other seeds, the truth was received, and it said even with one, with joy it was received. But it was received. But we have an undiscipled, immature, new believer. And before there could be discipleship, before there could be maturity, what happened? Well, for one, it got hard. Life got hard, and it was so hard they gave up and walked away. Doesn't mean they weren't saved. Doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they weren't mature enough or discipled enough to know how to respond to the difficulties of life, and they gave up on on their faith. Fortunately for us, God doesn't give up on us. And we're not holding on to him. I've said this before. He's holding on to us. So you can give up on your faith. That doesn't mean it's erased. It just means you're going to suffer from a very uh, rebellious lifestyle opposed to the God that loves you and saved you. You can walk away from your faith, but God still got you. And then we know about the thorny ground. I stated it already. It's when you maybe didn't give up, but there's so many nice things this world has to offer, and you start grabbing at them rather than God. You're not going to grow, and you're not going to have fruit. So I, I believe that someone can be saved and not evidenced fruit in this life. The Bible tells us that some are saved as by fire. That phrase has the idea of, They didn't take anything with them. (laughs) Everything was burnt up. They went to heaven, but that's it, as opposed to those who are rewarded and have crowns to cast at the feet of Christ. When the, the, the unnecessary things are burned up, there is still something left that was accomplished for the Lord. Well, not everyone will have something left. There will be some who everything they did in this life is burnt up, and they're just, you might say, barely saved, right? They'll get to heaven, but that's it. And so... Those kinds of Christians who don't bear fruit, they don't see the fruit of Christianity in their life, they, they know that the cares of this world are strong, they know they're running towards the world, they know they've walked away from their faith, it got hard and they gave up, inevitably they're going to think something. What is it they're going to think? I'm not saved. doesn't mean they don't want to be saved, it just means they love the world too much to change, to change what they feel about salvation. Now, I want to clarify something. Changing their actions to do good doesn't mean they automatically are saved or would be saved. It just would probably uh, limit the emotional turmoil they're going through in their rebellion towards God. But because they're rebelling against God, their emotions are so strong, they feel so bad, they feel so guilty, they don't feel saved. And if they don't feel saved, they're going to eventually believe, I must not be saved. 
And these are the ones who struggle most with this passage of the unpardonable sin. But they're not the only ones. There are those who are aware of the Bible, have been told the stories, go to church, but don't have a deep enough understanding maybe of this text where it still scares them. And sometimes they wonder, well, wait a second. Did I lose my salvation? Did I in some way commit the unpardonable sin? So, I've laid enough foundation for this text. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, Verse 25, first of all, I love Jesus' response. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. So he basically responds to them by saying, seriously, you think I'm of Satan, but I'm casting out the demons? Like, how does that benefit me or Satan if I'm on his side casting out his demons? Don't you love it? God's using logic here. Well, imagine that. You know, religion has logic. Wow, who would have thought? I love logic. I think logic is a beautiful thing. I think logic was given to us by God, not the world. Science didn't give us logic. Because of logic, we discovered science. Science didn't give us wisdom. Because of wisdom, we can understand better science. So if science didn't give us logic and wisdom, who did? Exactly, who did? God did. The one who created logic, the one who created wisdom. God's not ashamed of logic. God doesn't always just say faith, faith, faith. You know, God's what? God is more than happy to have a logical conversation with you. You're going to lose that one if you're on the other side, though. God is more than happy to, you might say, flex his wisdom. He does throughout Scripture. You're going to lose that one if you're on the other side. So God uses logic here. And he says, come on, guys, be logical. Seriously, I'm on Satan's side casting out his demons. That doesn't work. But then he goes on to get spiritual. And I love how God uses logic, but he doesn't end with it. He uses logic to get to the spiritual, which is the more important side. Just like scientists claim they have logic, and I'm not saying they don't. They use it to get to some scientific point, right? Christ uses logic to get to some spiritual point. And so he says in, uh, let's go to verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me Scattereth abroad. Whoa, whoa, whoa. All right. We got Christ caught in a lie. Because I know there was a passage where the disciples came to Christ, and they said, hey, these guys are doing some things, and they're doing them in your name, but they're not with us. And what did Christ say to them? Why? If they're not against us, then they are with us. Well, how can that be true if Christ is saying here, those that are not with me are against me? Because in this passage, he's talking about a spiritual connection. He's basically saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? John 14, 6. He's saying that you're not going to make it to God against me. You can't be my enemy and get to heaven. If, you're, if you are not with me, if you have not accepted me as Savior, if, if you are, in this context, if you are claiming I am of the devil, religious leaders, if you have a false religion that does not include me, then you're not with me. And you're not going to make it to God the Father outside of me. Now, to the disciples in that context, it was more of a practical ministry statement. Wait a second, they, go, they don't go to our church They're not wearing our church T-shirt. They're not wearing our church logo. And God's saying, what are you? If they're not against, you know, Christianity, if they're not against the truth of God's word, I don't care what their church name is called. I don't care what T-shirt they're wearing. They're with us. We're one. All right, so one is philosophical relating to ministry. This one is theological relating to salvation. So don't, don't get 
concerned about how these phrases seem to contradict themselves. They're in two different contexts. And then he says in verse 31, that famous verse, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now, first of all, this idea of the unpardonable sin, this is the only text, and the the phrase unpardonable sin isn't even in this text, but this is the phrase used to describe what Christ is saying. There is no other unpardonable sin in Scripture. This, this is it right here. And you know what's interesting? A lot of people, they, they know about the unpardonable sin, but they don't know even know what it is. I mean, some people, do you know what some people think it is? Suicide. I was talking with a young man uh, two, a couple weeks ago in our school, and he said, Pastor Russ, yeah, yeah, he said, I have a family member who committed suicide. This was some time ago, not, re- not recent, but he was bothering him. And he said, I was told by someone they're in hell. Not someone here, just someone else. He said, they were told me that they're in hell because they committed suicide. He said, is that true? And I said, and I, had told, I said his name. I said, look, um, there are some who believe that. And the, the, the source of that belief comes from Catholicism. Catholics believe that if you don't get pardoned for your sins before you die, you go to hell. Now, they would say purgatory, you can be bought out of it or prayed out of it, right? But it is a form of hell. And so I said, that's a Catholic belief, and they believe that you have to see a priest or be pardoned by a priest before you die, or you're going to end up in hell for some amount of time. I said, that is not in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture that requires us to, right before we die, Lord, forgive me for my sins, or go to a priest, forgive me, for I have sinned. Scripture doesn't claim that. That's a belief system from Catholicism. Unfortunately, a lot of non-Catholics heard it from a Catholic or heard it from someone from someone who was from a Catholic, and so it's kind of gone through the grapevine where even evangelical Christians believe that, and they don't even know where the source is from. It's not the Bible. I've asked many people before, what if there was one sin that would not be forgiven that would take you to hell, what would it be? A lot of people most say suicide. Can you guess what the second most one is? You know, shockingly, it's not rape. I would have thought, like, rape, that's a horrible thing. They say murder. I mean, like, I would put rape above murder. I think that's, you're stealing someone's soul. And I don't want to get into the depths of those sins. You can have your own opinion, but it's, just, it's murder. When I do the survey with adults and I ask them, it's murder is the second one that comes up. If you murder someone, you can never go to hell or never go to heaven. Well, unfortunately for the Apostle Paul, the poor guy's dying in hell today then because he was a murderer indirectly, if not directly. So we know that's not true. Right? So then when I tell people these things, they're like, well, I don't know. Most people don't even know of this, of the, of the fact the unpardonable sin came from this text. And then those who do know that don't understand what it's saying. <laughs> so it's this general idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Did I do that? Am I doing that now? Because it, it seems pretty clear to me that if you did it, like, there's no coming back from it. Right? God will never forgive that. So then there are, there's a few different lines of thought regarding this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The first, and, and probably the, the main line, mainstream thought regarding what this means is the belief that it could not be done by anyone today. It was a sin that could only be committed by those who are alive during the time of Christ and to essentially said what the Pharisees said, that Christ, you're doing the works of the devil. And if you said that and believed it, you weren't going to heaven. There was nothing you could do. Your, your eternity is locked in. But we can't commit that sin today 
because Christ is not among us today, walking on earth doing miracles. Now, that's an assumption. That's an interpretation. You're welcome to believe it if you'd like. I don't agree with that belief. Uh, many theologians would say that if you look into commentaries. I, I believe something different. I believe that it can be committed today. I believe, of course, it is connected to Christ. You say, well, wait a second. The Holy Ghost is the one being blasphemed, not Christ. In fact, it actually says, speaking word against the Son of Man would be forgiven. Literally, you can speak against Christ, but not the Holy Ghost. All right. When there are confusing verses, the best thing you can do is look at the context. Look at what's going on around that verse, and it will help unlock what you might say the hard, deep truths are unlocked by the context. What just happened? Christ cast out demons. What was said? He's the Messiah. What was the reaction, response? No, he's not. He's of Satan. He's not the Messiah. Then Christ says, if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you can't be saved. So, here's what I believe is going on. The Pharisees were rejecting the deity of Christ. The religious leaders were claiming Jesus Christ is not the Savior. He is Satan incarnate. He's not God. He cannot save you. Well, then why is the Holy Spirit being brought up? It seems to me, this, this verse kind of clarifies, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. How that looks in heaven, I do not know. How that looked even then is a little fuzzy to me. But the Holy Spirit is not some closeted part of God that's only brought out occasionally and is like the weak link. No, he's not. The Holy Spirit is God. And it seems that even when Christ walked the earth, the Holy Spirit had participation in what Christ did. And as Christ did miracles, it seems the Holy Spirit was participating in those miracles, which shouldn't seem so far-fetched for us. It only makes it only sounds crazy when we think the Holy Spirit is some kind of like you know, the ugly stepbrother or something like that, like he's the unwanted part of the trio. You say, well, that seems blasphemous. It should seem blasphemous, but you know what? In the back of our heads, a lot of evangelicals think that. Well, don't talk about the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, he's not really, you know, he's God, but, you know, kind of not really God, right? (laughs) No, he's God. (laughs) He was part of creation. He played a part in the resurrection of Christ. He plays a part in the miracles of Christ. So as Christ is doing miracles, casting out demons, the Holy Spirit is participating. In fact, so strongly that Christ literally says here that when you claim that my works are of the devil, you're actually speaking against the Holy Spirit. That when you claim that the work I do isn't the work of God, you are directly attacking the Holy Spirit. And that cannot be forgiven. So what does that mean? Let me break it down for you. The one sin, the only and one sin that will not be forgiven is this, rejection of Christ. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can do whatever you want, say whatever you want. It all sounds good. If you reject Christ, you're not going to heaven. God will not forgive the rejection of Christ's deity. God will not forgive the rejection of this truth. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. God will not forgive the rejection of the the power, miraculous power of Christ. If you reject that, you are going to hell. That is what Christ is saying here. That is the unpardonable sin. It is essentially the sin of not believing in Christ, not trusting in Christ as your Savior. 
So don't get overly concerned that you might have committed this sin. The only way to commit this sin is to not be saved. Because once you get saved, you, don't, you, don't, you no longer commit this sin. But whoa, well, hold on then. If you reject Christ as your Savior, can you get saved after you reject him? I believe that this is one of those cases where this sin is not forgiven when you die in this sin. Not so much that God says, oh, you rejected me at five, you'll never get another chance. Obviously not, right? So therefore, it's if you die committing this sin, you will go to hell. Committing the sin of Christ is not God. He is not the Savior, the Son of David, the Messiah. He is not that person. And you die. It doesn't matter what else you did. It doesn't matter who else you were. Christ says here, you will not be forgiven. Unpardonable sin. Now, verse 33. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. Now he's kind of going back to the logic saying, look, you basically know me by, by my fruit. Look at what I'm doing. If my fruit is good, then I'm good. If my fruit is bad, then I'm bad. You can't claim that my fruit is good. Healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons. You can't say, oh, those are good things, but you're an evil person. Christ says the, the fruit is good because the tree is good. The fruit is evil because the tree is evil. Now, people can be deceived. Leaders can, you know, manipulate. But if you have the wisdom to see the actual fruit, then you have a pretty good idea of where that source, what, what, what the source is creating the fruit. Verse 34, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. <laughs> a lot of uh, preachers like to use that verse relating to people in the church. I know you, I know your heart, because of out of your heart you speak. And when I hear these things, I know your heart. It's interesting how Christ is actually speaking to leaders at this point. And he's actually encouraging the church to evaluate the leaders <laughs> by what they said. Not necessarily for the leaders to evaluate the people. And he says in verse 35, of course, uh, you know, good treasure. Uh, a good, good heart brings good treasure, and evil heart, evil man, brings evil treasure. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. He's not saying you'll go to hell or heaven by what you say. He's saying you'll be judged by the things you say at the day of judgment. Your own words will condemn you in that day of judgment. When you stand before God as the unsaved, if you have not accepted Christ, God's not going to need to bring in uh, liars like was brought at his trial to say false things about you. God will be able to use your own words against you. How many people have said, God doesn't exist? God says, I don't need any other witnesses. You're, you're, you're condemning yourself. How many people say Christ isn't God? God says, I need no witnesses. You just condemn yourself. Your own words condemn you. And those who believe in Christ, have faith in Christ, God says, I need no other witness. You know, Christ heard, and we're told in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God doesn't need to go to, to me and say, Russ, you know, speak on behalf of this person. Are they really saved? No, it's not necessary. <laughs> your choices, your words, those will condemn you or those will confirm the faith that you have in Christ. Now, let's move on. Uh, I'd like to take a look at verse 38 of this same chapter. Then the certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He just cast out a demon. 
this is so amazing, the crowd said, it's the Messiah. (laughs) I told you, level 10 for whatever reason in that culture. That was a big deal. And now these guys are saying, nope, he's of the devil. Christ says, no, 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 I'm not. If I was of the devil, I I would do the work of the devil, not against him. And you would see fruit that represented devil, not the fruit that represented God and good works. After Christ is done speaking, they're saying, all right, fine, fine. Prove it. Prove that you're God. I mean, he just literally did that. The thing about skeptics is you can do whatever you want. They'll never be convinced. That's why they're called skeptics. So what does Christ tell them? He says, verse 39, evil, adulterous generation seeks after a sign, a sign, and there shall no sign be given to thee but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this, this passage has brought a lot of uh, false teaching into what would be otherwise sound (laughs) teachers of the faith. And there's a lot of unsound teachers who take this passage and abuse it. But I've known a lot of guys who I think truly want to understand and know Scripture, and they just cannot get around this passage. They keep going to this passage. And so this passage domino effect uh, in some way, directly or indirectly, causes some chaos in their head regarding the resurrection of Christ, the timeline of Christ's resurrection and how that looks. Because that's obviously what Christ is referring to. He's referring to the fact that I'm going to die, but I'll raise again. And you know what? For you skeptics, that's the final, that's the best sign that I'm going to give you. And at that point, you either accept it or you reject it. But I'm basically saying I'm not going to follow you around and just show you a miracle every 30 minutes to prove who I am to you. You, skeptics, religious leaders who've already rejected me, you got one sign coming your way, my future resurrection. That's the basic context. The emphasis is not the three days exact and three nights exact. The emphasis is I'll be in the tomb three days and I'll raise again on the third day, right? On the third day, not after the third day. Because other texts tell us on the third day, referring to the first day of the week, Sunday, on the third day. But those who get overly, you might say, OCD of this passage and say, Russ, it literally says three days and three nights. That's three whole 24-hour days and nights. To say anything else is to call Christ a liar. To say anything else is to claim that Scripture contradicts itself. Do you believe Scripture contradicts itself? Do you believe Scripture is lying? Do you believe that the Word of God was not preserved and somehow tainted or twisted? No, I just believe your interpretation of the text is uh, uninformed. Let me put it that way. I do not see in this verse the requirement of three full 24-hour days. Just three days and three nights. Well, Russ, a day is 24 hours. So we're going we're gonna to talk through this because it just blows my mind. Every single April, social media, it's everywhere. This image is like on every person in their mother's Facebook page. If you don't see it, bless you. You are, you are blessed for not having to see this image because it drives me crazy every time I see this image. I'm like, it is so obviously wrong. Has so many obvious problems. And I know some of you are kind of far away from this image to see what's going on. Let me point out 
what the image claiming, and then I'm going to tell you why it is a fallacy, <laughs> why this image is false. And then I'm going to tell you what is the truth behind the resurrection of Christ. Are you guys ready for this? Okay, so we have on this image, um, first of all, you've got to understand something, which is true. And it, by the way, the greatest deceptions are those that have mostly truth attached to them. And just a slight alteration, when it's blatantly false all the way around, it's easy to catch what is a lie. But when you, when you see, well, that makes sense, that adds up, that verse is, is taken in context, and that verse is taken in context, when you see that, you begin to just trust everything else. It's like looking at a contract that is 50 pages long, and you read the first few pages, everything's right, you skim through the rest, everything's right, but you just don't do the work of every detail, and you miss something, and someone slid something past you, and now your name's on the line, on the dotted line. All right, so here's what it's claiming. I'll tell you some truths, first of all. It's claiming that a day in the Jewish calendar uh, began at dusk, at sundown, uh, you might say moonrise, right? When the sun went down, the day started, which that is true. The day started not at midnight like it does for us, right? Our day, 12 uh, o'clock and one second is now a new day according to us. That is not biblical. That's just something our English culture created. There is no biblical um, reason for the day starting at midnight. According to Jewish tradition, the day began, and according to the Old Testament, clarifies the day began at dark, which is why Seventh-day Adventists start their Saturday, Sabbath day, at dark on Friday, because the Seventh-day Adventists, Saturday, they are following the Jewish tradition of when a day begins and the Jewish tradition of don't work on Saturday. So Friday night at dark, a Seventh-day Adventist doesn't work. But they will work Saturday night at dark, because a new day begins Saturday night when it gets dark. So that's true. So this calendar, this little seven-day calendar you see here, seven-day week, is portraying that, or not full seven days, starting Tuesday to Sunday, is portraying that accurately. It also is portraying the month Nisan. The month Nisan is, is biblically in the Old Testament, the first month of the year. Whoa, 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 Pastor Russ. We know that Easter is in April, not January. That's like a given. Actually, that's also true-ish, <laughs> But the first month of the Jewish calendar, Nisan, wasn't in January. You know, we created our own calendar, right? The, the Romans and others created calendars after the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar's month, first month of the year, began around March, April of our current calendar. How do we know that? Well, when you look at Old Testament, New Testament, the Passover, and you see when things landed, yes, that is the case. So March, April, uh, during the harvest time and all this kind of stuff, that was the first month of the year, Nisan. When you look at the Old Testament, you find specific instruction on how the Jews were to celebrate the month of Nisan. Very specific instruction in the book of Leviticus and other books, repeating what the book of Leviticus gave us. Now, the first thing you should know about the month Nisan is that is when the Passover was celebrated. The Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan, the 14th day of of the first month, not January, first month Nisan of the Jewish calendar, which would be March, April-ish for us. So the 14th day of their first month would be into April for us. So that's true. On the 15th day of Nisan, which is the day after the Passover, is the first day of a seven-day feast called 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That is true. This calendar kind of alludes to that. This little image alludes to that. That's accurate. Looking at Old Testament, looking at the Gospels, this is all accurate. And on the first day of the, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day after the Passover, it was a Sabbath day. A Sabbath day is a day where you are supposed to rest and not do work and focus on God, reflect on God. The different Sabbath days had different um, reasons for them, for celebrating them, and they had different things that were accomplished on them, you might say, religiously. They, didn't, they weren't all celebrated the same, and they weren't all celebrated for the same reason. Now, I am not talking about Saturday, which is a weekly Sabbath day. Every week, there was the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. The Jews set aside and, and you might say, reflected on their God. That was every Saturday. On top of every Saturday, there were multiple holy days. The Bible refers to them as high days. These holy days, high days, holy day, holiday, right? High days, many of them were also Sabbath days. And so these holy, high Sabbath days landed on a day of the month, not a day of the week. And if you understand how calendars work, any calendar, the day of that month doesn't always fall on the same day of the week every year. The 14th day of Nisan could be a Tuesday one year and a Wednesday the next, and a Thursday the year after that, and a Friday some other year, right? The 14th day of Nisan doesn't always fall on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, which is true for our calendar. So, the 15th day was a high, holy Sabbath day. And the Jews were to celebrate that day like a Sabbath day on top of the normal Saturday. So certain months and certain weeks, they had more than one Sabbath day, more than one celebration day, more than one day of don't work. And this was one of those weeks. It was not one Sabbath day Saturday. It was Saturday plus a holy day, the first day of unleavened bread, which fell after the Passover. So there were two Sabbath days this week. And guess what? This image also states that. So far, everything I've said, this image states and agrees with. And that's the problem. There is mostly truth on this image. But the, where, it, where it gets off, it gets off real bad. <laughs> right away, can you see a problem with this image, right, just from the get-go? Even if you didn't know anything else that I just told you, even if you were clueless about the Sabbath day and the holy day, even if you didn't know about the first day of unleavened bread, which was a, a feast uh, day. By the way, a reminder, the, the Sabbath... <laughs> The, the um, Passover was a reminder of what? Does anyone remember? Yeah, yes, yes. So when the Jews uh, were in Egypt and the angel of death passed over those who had the, the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the Passover was a day to remind them of that. And you remember that during the Passover in Egypt, literally they were instructed to eat what kind of bread? Do you remember that? 
unleavened bread, which was a picture of uh, holiness without leaven. And so God later said, I want you to celebrate the passive, Passover to, re- to remind you of what I did for you on that day and that the blood of the lamb allows for the angel of death to pass over. And the unleavened bread, I want you to, re- to remind you of the truth of that fact that, that we are to be holy, a separate people, unleavened, right, without leaven. And there was a whole multiple day celebration of the unleavened. Now, the, the whole Passover, the whole feast, I'm sorry, the whole feast was not a Passover. It was just, again, the first day of the unleavened. The Passover was not a Sabbath day. The Passover, you could work, you could, you could prepare. It was the first day that was a Sabbath. Now, there is some confusion. We're actually told as Christ enters into Jerusalem. We're told, and on the first day of preparation, he arrives, and the Jews and his disciples say, uh, where should we go to have the Passover? So this seems to cause some confusion because, wait a second, the first day of preparation is usually alluding to the first day of unleavened bread. How can the first day of preparation also be the day of Passover? What is that stating? I'm going to clear that up real easy for you. Um, although technically the day of preparation was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread after the Passover, the Jews had began using the day of preparation, obviously, as a term of the Passover to prepare for the day of of unleavened bread. And so they were, you know, going to work, buying what they needed, doing all these things. And so the term uh, day of preparation had been changed to refer to the Passover day, which was preparing for that feast, the first day of which you couldn't do any work. So that, if you care, that clears that up. If you don't care, then just forget what I said and let's keep going. So uh, Christ enters Jerusalem. He has the Passover. And then what happens? That, by the way, that Passover, he, he has the Passover that night. It's dark. It's dusk. So he actually dies on the Passover. That's important to understand. And again, this image says that. He dies on the Passover. He celebrates it at night, which is when the Passover begins, because the Passover day begins at night when it's dark. So you might say he started celebrating, let's say, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night, whatever, right? He has that, and then all night he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, still the Passover. And then the disciples are falling asleep, still the Passover. He goes to trial early in the morning. It's still the Passover day. It began the night. When, it, when the sun went down, the day began at night. And then he, he's put on the cross. It's still the Passover. And then he dies. It's still the Passover. <laughs> okay, again, this image shows that. This image shows him dying around 6 o'clock. Yep, that's true. The Bible says that. But then this image is very, very strong on the belief that Christ was in the tomb for 72 hours. Three full 24-hour days. And this image has him dying, if you look... It says it has him dying on Wednesday. And when does it have him raising from the dead? Look at the end, if you can see that far. On when? Saturday. It's literally to the left of Sunday. It says three days, three nights, and, you know, full, right, 72 hours. And then it says Jesus rose after exactly three days. I'm going to walk up here. You probably can't see it right here. Jesus rose after exactly three days, three nights, 72 hours, right? Because they, they believe very strongly this text in Matthew is, it needs to be taken literally. Uh, fulfilling the sign of Jonah and authenticating the sign uh, he gave his Messiah. But when does it have him raised from the dead? On Saturday. They have him dying on Wednesday and raising on Saturday. Why would they do that? Because 
if you go to this website, and by the way, it's not always the same website, but they're all the same type of websites. They are very strong Seventh-day Adventist or similar religion. Very strong adherence to Old Testament Jewish law. They are creating images to push the theology that Christ rose on a Saturday. Why would they care? Because what day is important to them? Saturday. And they want it to be important to you. They're literally twisting Scripture, deceiving evangelical Christians, so many of which I've seen pastors, guys, pastors of good, strong Baptist churches are circulating this image like every, every April. April. I was going to say Easter. Every April, circulating this image. I called one out this time, and I said, hey, man, you realize this has Christ raising on Saturday? And he literally said to me, no, it doesn't. I thought, if you look at the image, he's raising during the day on Saturday. And he says, no, it, does. no, it doesn't. And he basically told me to stop harassing him. I, I mean, social media is public. I said, hey, look, my, my intention is not to offend so if you don't want to have this conversation, I'll oblige, and we won't continue the conversation. These men, I believe, love God. I have no doubt of that. I, th- I don't understand how they don't see what is clearly before their eyes. One guy said, did you look? I, I actually referred to, I, called, I, I dealt with two this year. <laughs> and one guy, I, I messaged him, and I said, hey, just so you're aware, you're, you're throwing this image out. I know you're a godly man. I know you love truth. Have you been to the website on this image that you're throwing out? And 10 minutes later, he said, wow, I didn't see that. Thank you. And he deleted the thing. Just, just the fact of who it was associated with, he took it off. So you say, Pastor Russ, what's the big deal? Who cares? Well, we got a problem here. If Christ rose on Saturday, then he didn't rise on the first day of the week. The Bible's very clear about that. If Christ rose three days, exactly three days, three nights, then he didn't raise on the third day. He would have rose some seconds or moments after the third day. And here's the thing. The reason they put it on Wednesday is not because we know that Nisan 14, the 14th day of Nisan, fell on a Wednesday. There's no way for us to know that. We have no clue 2,000 years ago. When the 14th day of Nisan, what day of the week it fell on? We don't know that. They are making an assumption of that. Why would they make that assumption? Because it fits their narrative. What narrative? That Christ rose on Saturday. By the way, you also noticed, not only does it have them Christ raising during the day, the Bible said Christ rose when? Early morning. Early morning, third day on, not after, on the third day, early morning, first day of the week. What do they got? Jonas, three days, and three, three days and three nights in the tomb. That's all they've got. So either you're not interpreting the prophecy of Jonas correctly or all those other very clear texts are lying. So which one are you going to come up with? Well, obviously I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not preaching to Seventh-day Adventists, but I obviously believe that's the issue. You say, well, Pastor Russ, how can this be fixed? Easy. <laughs> Don't have them die on Wednesday. Have them die on Thursday. Because everything else about this image actually fits pretty well. Only one other thing. And the problem is, if you, if you bump him to dying on Thursday, now he's raising from the dead on Sunday late, right? So that's still a problem because we're told he rose early in the morning on the third day. So this image is, is pretty good, except for he would have died Thursday around 6 o'clock, 
and rose early Sunday. Well, Pastor Russ, that's not a full 72 hours. And again, I don't see the need for that. I don't see Matthew requiring a full 72 hours. He says three days, three nights. Well, is, is, is you know, Thursday to Sunday morning, three days and three nights? Sure. Because in Jewish culture, a part of a day was a day. And that's the only way for us to fit the theological statement in Scripture that he rose on the third day. Otherwise, to have a full 72 hours and raised on the third day, those both can't happen, especially paired with early in the morning. That cannot happen. If he died at 6 p.m. and rose a full 72 hours later, he could not have rose early in the morning, and he could not have rose on the third day. So, most sound theologians believe from historical research and even today, that even in most cultures, any part of a day is a day. Even when talking to my kids, how many days till my birthday? I don't say, well, you know, this amount of hours. I say, you got a day, even though it's less than or more than, because you're talking general figures. So the prophecy regarding Jonah is not to be taken as set Christ will be in the tomb 72 hours, but rather he'll be in the tomb three days, and on the third day, he will raise again. I actually put all that, oh, here we go, false. That is false, just in case you were wondering, wait, so are you with this or against it? I'm against it, okay? I'm against it. I, part of me was concerned that if I showed this image, like you guys would think I'm agreeing with it, but hopefully I have clarified that. Okay, I, went, I put this all here. I'm not going to go through and read this for you, but I basically put on this PowerPoint all of the statements that I've, I've pre- previously made. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to scroll through them so that if you want to watch this later, you don't have to write down what I said. You can actually go back to this video. You can pause these images, which are stating on PowerPoint everything that I just explained to you verbally regarding the resurrection of Christ, the, the unleavened bread feast, and the first day of that feast, and the Sabbath day, and the high holy day. Which, by the way, you know, I didn't state this. I will do this. Um, I'll, I'll make this claim, and that will help you understand something. Um, why is it that people think Christ died on Friday? which I don't think is plausible. Well, because, you know, Sabbath day. He had to be buried in the tomb before Sabbath. Yeah, that's weak theology, weak research. And so some time ago, back in the day when, you know, I hate to throw them under the bus, but the Catholics didn't really know Scripture well. They only knew parts of it, and they read the generic, shallow idea, oh, there was a Sabbath day. Well, we know Saturday is the only Sabbath day. So he had to have died on Friday because Scripture is clear the Sabbath day was the next day, which we all know is Saturday. They, they didn't know their Old Testament well enough to know there could be more than one Sabbath day in a week. So these unlearned monks or whoever came up with this for the very first time, not knowing there could be more than one Sabbath day, assumed he had to have died on Friday because Sabbath day is Saturday, and we know he was in the tomb on Sabbath day. Here's what I believe. I believe the only thing that makes sense is there was two Sabbath days, and they were back-to-back. So he died on Thursday. The holy high Sabbath day was, was Friday. The normal Sabbath day was on Saturday, and then he rose on Sunday, which meant the ladies, for two days in a row, could not go to the tomb. They could not travel. They could not do anything with the body of Christ because Friday was the holy Sabbath, the high Sabbath, and Saturday was the regular Sabbath. So adhering to the law... Although he died Thursday night, they could not do anything till early Sunday morning. They technically could have gone 
like around maybe 7 p.m., you know, what we would call Saturday night, you know, 7 p.m., as it, as it got dusk, I can only assume one of two things. That's when they, got, they gathered the spices. Um, and so they spent that time preparing and getting ready. And then they went later that day, which is in our idea, later, early morning, right? However you want to say it. And then they went then, or they just were tired. I, I'm going with the first one. I mean, these ladies are obviously very committed. I don't think it's like, oh, you know, we're tired. Let's just go tomorrow. No, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I'm assuming that's when they were getting everything ready. Um, as soon as the Sabbath was done, they started the preparation, and it took them, you know, some time to gather things and get it ready. And so they couldn't go to the tomb till you know, hours later, which would be for us early Sunday morning. But on the Jewish calendar, it would have already been, you know, 10 hours probably easily into the day, right, because the day starts when it gets dark. All right, so... Hopefully, if you even cared, I don't know. Most of you may not have cared to know all that information, but now you know it whether you like it or not, so there. And uh, hopefully you have a deeper understanding of what that looks like with Christ and his resurrection and can answer. And I'll tell you when it would be valuable is Seventh-day Adventists. If you ever find yourself in a conversation with one who actually wants to know truth, then now you have some, some tools in your belt to uh, have a conversation. Hope you can join us next week as we continue our series on the life of Christ. And uh, thank you for being here tonight. Let's go ahead and end with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for another night to see truth and to gain some knowledge of Scripture. I pray it would be an encouragement to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.